So Jesus, you do overcome all things and pray that through your word you help us have hope in you and be carriers of hope to a world that needs it. We ask this in your name, Jesus. Amen. Well, hello. It is so good to be back with you after a summer of study leave. I read lots. I learned lots. I studied what some other churches are doing, all of which I will share in due time. But I'm just really good to be back with you. I'm super grateful for this study leave policy. My daughter is not so sure about it. She says, you know, it's it's really not worth it because now you have to come back all holy. So... A couple weeks ago, she asked, are you holier now? Because you've got to go back. I'm like, I'm not sure about that. But I did learn a lot, and I missed you guys a ton. You guys are just a wonderful church, and I love you, and it is just so good to be back uh, with you. As part of my preparation to become a pastor, I worked as a chaplain in a hospital for a summer. And all the chaplains had to meet every day in a group therapy session to process our feelings. Ick. And everyone, every day, would cry all the time. Everyone in the group would cry except me. I never cried. So it became the stated goal of the group to get me to cry. And every day, they would say, how come you haven't cried yet? What are you hiding? What's wrong with you? How how, how come you can't cry? Cry. Are you going to cry? I was like, no. I didn't crack. Not once. The whole summer. They were very disappointed. And I worked on the oncology floor, so I saw a lot of death. And in those group sessions, our supervisor had this phrase he would always use that sounds so callous. He would say, you have to remember that every death solves a problem. It may be a very tiny problem, almost trivial. Maybe it opens up new possibilities for someone else. You know, often it's that that person is out of suffering and in a better place. But every death solves a problem. Which means that at every death there are two emotions, grief and relief. And the only question is proportion. And you have to touch both or you haven't done your job as a chaplain. Now, there are a lot of deaths I can think of that don't solve any problems. But as I've lived with that phrase over the years, I've come to see kind of that as a spiritual metaphor, as a kind of general spiritual principle of life, every death has a problem is actually profound. A more positive way of putting it would be every death, say the death of a dream or the death of a relationship. Another word we could use and that I'll use is every problem opens up corresponding possibilities. Every death has an attendant resurrection when Jesus is in the mix. Which is what we saw in the scripture that Rich just read. The context is a man named Stephen has just been stoned to death for talking about Jesus becoming the first Christian martyr. And that sets off a persecution that scatters the Christians out of Jerusalem into the surrounding countries. And the result is the good news of Jesus starts to spread around the Mediterranean. And the passage begins by saying, Godly men buried Stephen and mourned for him deeply. And the Greek word there is literally mega mourning. Lots of mourning. And then later it says, the passage ends by saying there was great joy, not just a little joy, mega joy in that city. So we go from mega mourning to mega joy in the space of just six verses. Because that's what Jesus can do. We're launching a new sermon series today called Pathfinders about how we can be trailblazers, and I believe we are a trailblazing church, how we can be trailblazers who find hope and joy as followers of Jesus in a post-Christian culture. Because we have witnessed the death of something. We have witnessed the death of what some people call Christendom, the idea that the West is, for the most part, a Christian culture. Well, if that was ever true, it is certainly not true anymore, is it? I mean, fewer and fewer people are, identify as Christian Here in King County, only around 8 or 9% of folks go to church. And it is increasingly unpopular to be a Christian these days. 
And have you noticed Christians have been much in the news lately? And not always with a positive spin. And I'll address some of that in future sermons. But the upshot is you can feel like a real weirdo if you are a Christian, particularly here in the Northwest. I was talking to a guy from our church recently who went on a blind date. And at dinner, his date just went on and on about how her last blind date was with a Christian. And she said, can you imagine? I mean, they're so narrow-minded and judgmental and they're so ignorant and uneducated and just goes on and on and on. And finally, she changed the subject and she said, well, what'd you do this weekend? Well, he'd gone to church, right? Like you can feel like a real weirdo. Christendom has died. Another word for it might be churchianity, kind of a cultural Christianity where it's really just kind of a lifestyle. We just go to church. It's about church, but it's not about a living connection with the living Lord that transforms us and makes us transforming agents in the culture. It's just kind of this cultural Christian thing. That is, if it's not dead already, it is dying. And it is a death that solves a lot of problems. Because you see, Jesus isn't dead. He lives and reigns. And his church, by which I mean that community of people who participate with him in the making new of all things, that's not dead. In fact, globally, it's growing like a weed. It is a good time to be a Christian in America. Because this moment in history opens up all kinds of possibilities for bold, new, exciting ways of following Jesus and being his church. Get out of cultural Christianity and get back to that powerful, catalytic, culture-changing relationship with Jesus. And one of the things I love about being a pastor in the Northwest is that, you know, generally speaking, if you go to church here, like, you mean it at some level, right? Like, especially you guys, you are DVRing the Seahawks. <laughs> like, you are the committed core, right? Like, you're really in. So for the next few weeks, we're going to talk about how we find hope in Jesus as exiles in a post-Christian culture. And, and I want to, in each sermon, I want to talk about how we find hope personally as well as corporately. And the kind of the cornerstone sermon in this series that kind of sets the framework for it will actually be in two weeks on the 27th. So I I, I hope you can be there. Because I believe we're on the edge of a golden age of Christianity. There's an irony in today's story, which starts with the persecution. And it says, on that day, a great persecution broke out against the church. And all were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. And Saul began to destroy the church. And the Greek word there for destroy is used for animals tearing their prey apart. Very violent word. As a result, it says, those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. And the Greek word for preached is evangelized, which does not mean shoving your religion at someone. It comes from the Greek word that means good news. So in other words, they good newsed everybody. They just dumped good news on everyone that they saw. They lived good news for all to see. And the result was that Christianity exploded across the Middle East. So that the thing that was meant to destroy Christianity, the persecution, actually made it spread by scattering Christians out of Jerusalem. That's the physics of grace. Bible puts it this way, where sin increased, grace increased all the more. In other words, when Satan shoves you, God shoves him back all the harder. And he takes Satan's weapons and turns them back on Satan and uses them to bring good things out of it. The weapon Satan used to destroy the church ended up just scattering the church and making it grow. God takes the problems and hurts of our lives and forces them to yield good things so that we begin in mourning and end in joy. In fact, there are three purposes of problems in this text that you can see. And the first is this. The purpose of problems is to produce faith. Now, God can grow our faith in good times, and he doesn't cause the bad times, but he uses them to help grow our faith. And you see that in this text. The last thing Jesus said to his disciples was, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, 
Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Pretty clear strategic plan, right? But eight chapters into the book of Acts, where are all the disciples? Still in Jerusalem, still on phase one. They'd gotten comfortable there. And comfort is the enemy of growth and adventure and joy. And it's the opposite of faith. As I've said many times, if you want to walk on water, you have to get out of the comfortable boat. Now that takes faith, but that's where all the miracles are. And God didn't cause Stephen's death and the persecution, but Stephen's death did solve a problem. It got the Christians out of Jerusalem. The purpose of problems is to produce faith. Second, the purpose of problems is to extend grace. The story says that a Christian named Philip was scattered, went down to a city in Samaria, and proclaimed Christ there. That is a revolutionary sentence. Because you see, Jews viewed Samaritans as traitors, heretics, and racially impure. But the problem of the persecution forced Philip out into Samaria to extend grace to a hated nation, and it is the first racial reconciliation in human history. In fact, the first, best, and most effective multi-ethnic racially reconciled community in all of history was the early church, where Jews and Gentiles who had hated each other for centuries started calling each other brother and sister in Christ. Because you see, Jesus makes that possible because Jesus levels the playing field. And he attacks both our inferiority and our superiority. Because his message is, all of you, all y'all have sinned. And you need God's grace to forgive you. All y'all. No one's better but his message is also, that, that wipes out our sense of superiority. His message is also, but I love you enough to die for you to forgive your sins. That's how valuable you are, which kind of attacks our sense of inferiority and makes reconciliation possible. So let me ask, do you think true, genuine, racial reconciliation would be good news in our country right now? I think it would be. And the first people in history to do that were the early Christians. We see it even today in places like Rwanda, where through the power of Jesus, races are being reconciled. Guys, this is a Christian specialty. Jesus invented it. The church did it first. We could shine a beacon of hope for our whole country and change the reputation of Jesus in our culture. We got an opportunity here, church. We got an opportunity. The purpose of problems is to extend grace, corporately and individually. Let me ask you this. Does any, any of you have a difficult person in your life? Like maybe a, a, a co-worker, a boss, a neighbor, a parent? I mean, anyone, raise your hand. Anyone got a difficult person? Oh, come on. Anyone got a difficult person? Yeah. Maybe it's the person sitting next to you. Right? Of course, their hand is up too. Don't know what that's about. The purpose of that difficult person is to extend grace in your life and theirs. And then third, the purpose of problems is to demonstrate God's power. It says that through Philip's ministry in Samaria, many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. The persecution caused Philip to go to Samaria where God's power was unleashed. The purpose of problems is to produce faith, extend grace, and demonstrate the power of God. All of which changes us for the better, which is what we all want, right? I mean, I mean at least half this room wants to change. And the other half wants them to change as well, right? God does this Heimlich maneuver on our problems and forces them to cough up good things. And that image is going to stick with you all week. That is preaching art right there, okay? Preaching brilliance right there. What that means is that we can, we can be defiant in the face of our problems. I'm not always defiant. Just ask, ask my wife. But it means we can be because of the power of Jesus. It's like David and Goliath. Giant Goliath tries to intimidate David. 
I'm going to kill you, right? That's, what the, that's how the enemy works, intimidation. But David goes on the attack. And he says, look here, Goliath. God said that I'm going to be king someday, and I'm not yet king, which means I can't die, which means suck, sucks to be you today. Because guess who's going to die today? We can be defiant. A Pastor Graham Cook puts it this way. At every new level, you meet a new devil. At every new level, you meet a new devil, and the new devil has to be bigger than the last one, or it won't be any fun. Because, see, God's going to grow you to the size of that giant. So the bigger the problem, the bigger you get. So the problem needs to be big because you don't want to be beaten up on some pygmy problem, right? So maybe we should be excited when we have a problem. Like maybe even call up a friend. Hey, John, guess what? Yeah, yeah, I got a problem today. Isn't that awesome? Yeah, it looks like a big one too, man. I'm so excited. Right? Yeah, and you know what? The Holy Spirit's here too. He's bouncing off the walls. You know him, Mr. Enthusiasm. Right? Apparently there's loads of good stuff that's going to come out of these problems. Man, these are going to be a great few months. Right, well, anyway, John, how are you doing today? Oh, you don't have a problem? Oh, man. Well, hang in there, man. One's bound to turn up, right? <laughs> hey, I got an idea. You want to share this one? See, things come to pass. They don't come to stay unless we make them part of the family. And throughout Scripture, there's this pattern of promise, problem, provision, possibility. God makes a promise, and then there's a problem, and then God gives a provision that forces the problem to yield new possibilities. So we do not stand on the problem. We stand on God's promises, on his provision and the possibilities the problem presents. That's true for us as individuals. It's true for us corporately as followers of Jesus living as exiles in a post-Christian culture. And that problem is filled with potential. Yes, churchianity is dying. Yes, Christendom is dying and dead and we should dance on its grave because it did us no good because it was about going through the forms, going through the rituals. We should dance on its grave. This problem is filled with potential for bold new ways of being really Christian, really following Jesus. You see it in the text we read where the persecution launched the first great revival, right? And, and you know, Jesus' last command to the disciples was, go, go make disciples. But instead, they acted as though Jesus said, stay. Because they just stayed in Jerusalem until the persecution forced them out. Even still, Jesus says to us, go. But what has the contemporary church done? We act as though Jesus said, stop. Right? Stop doing X. Stop doing Y. Stop doing Z. Right? The purpose of the Christian life is to stop. Red light, red light. Or yellow light. Be careful. Be cautious. Above all, be safe. Jesus' last command was to live life with a green light. Live a radically different, fanatically joyful, amazingly adventurous, sacrificially loving life that shows the real, risen, radical, making new of all things, healing all hurts, empowering us to live bold Jesus. As he is being stoned, Stephen looks and he sees Jesus standing in heaven. An interesting detail, because back then people thought the Messiah sat at the right hand of God. If you were making this up, Jesus would have been sitting. This is history. And, and Stephen sees that vision, and it gives him all this joy, even as he is dying. So let me ask this question. In a hedonistic culture, addicted to pleasure, and terrified of discomfort of any kind, do you think the promise that even in suffering we can have indestructible joy would be good news for our culture? Free us from all that worry, loss, and fear. Here's the thing, guys. Even a casual study, I spent all summer reading about this stuff, even a casual study of church history shows that over and over again when Christians occupy the center of a culture, we're awful. 
But when we occupy the margins, we act a whole lot more like Jesus and paradoxically, therefore, have much more influence on the culture than when we are in the center. So if our cultural centrality is dead, that death solves a lot of problems. And it opens the door for a fierce minority to live with a green light. And one of the things I love about this church is that so many of you are that fierce minority who live life with a green light. And when folks see Christians doing that, see Christians sacrificially caring for each other, what if, what if the church worldwide responded to the Syrian refugee crisis in such a way that the media would be forced to name the name of Jesus? They would have no choice. And as a church, I want you to know we're already there. Through what you give, we've already, before this even hit the headlines, we've been at this, we've been helping with that crisis for several years, and we're going to look for ways to do even more. When people see that, they'll be attracted. When people see genuine racial reconciliation in the church and good news for the poor and joy in hard times, they will ask, what's gotten into you? And we will say, Jesus. Every death solves a problem, and the death of Christendom opens up a bold new possibility of what it means to follow Jesus, which is why I believe that God is on the move on the east side to revive all things, revive marriages, revive people out of poverty, revive families, revive hope, revive joy, revive connection with him. The story we read today ends with joy, but that joy came not in spite of the problems, but right straight down the middle through them. Saul tried to destroy the church, it led to its expansion. He tried to scatter it, it led to more gatherings. He tried to kill it, it led to more life. You see this today in places like China, where the communists kicked out all the Western missionaries thinking, well, that'll do it, that'll stop the movement. Right? But instead, indigenous leaders rose up with an indigenous form of Christianity that started to spread. And now 8% of China is Christian, and 8% of a billion is a lot of people. Right? And in interestingly, 8% is about the number of people who go to church in King County. Difference being, in China, that number is going up. But it could do so here as well. Because where problems and sin and death increase, God's grace and power increase all the more. It's the physics of grace which means we can face our problems, be they corporate or personal, with confidence and flip them around and look for the possibilities inside. The day before I went on study leave this summer, I found out that I have glaucoma and have actually lost a lot of sight in my left eye and lost some sight in my right eye. Now, almost certainly it can be controlled from here on out with, with drops, and my right eye compensates for the loss of vision in my left, so I can still see and all that. But the damage that's done in the left eye in particular, it's, it's permanent. It'll never, it'll never come back. And if I look just through my left eye, there's this big blank right in the center of my vision. It, it's not fuzzy. It's not blurry. It's just not there. There's just this big blank. And the worst part is this is my own fault. Because right? had I gone to the eye doctor regularly like you're supposed to, right? they would have caught this a long time ago. It wouldn't have been as bad. So, you know, I don't even get the satisfaction of complaining about this. Before the doctor told me the results of the test, I said to her, you know, I, I'm kind of a worrier, and I'll make anything you say ten times worse, so kind of go easy on me, right? She said, you have severe sight loss, and if it gets much worse, you're going to be an invalid. Oh, Wow, did you learn that in like a you know, bedside manner class in med school? Like, wow, that was really awesome. I'd hate to see the harsh version. Now, now look, I have a choice, right? I can respond with whining and fear and complaining, which is pretty much how I have responded. You know, I could walk around covering my right eye and looking through my left and going, oh, God, it really is very bad, right? Which I've also been doing. My wife caught me once and said, stop it, just stop it. 
I can worry about having to use drops every day. You know, what if the Russians invade and I can't get the drops, you know? <laughs> it could happen. <laughs> or, or I could be grateful it's not worse, grateful that I live in a time when it can be controlled. I could also say, what might God want to be teaching me through this? Like, how on earth did I make myself so busy that I did not notice I was going blind? And how might God want to meet me in this? As Christians in exile in a post-Christian culture, we can wring our hands and worry, oh, the culture this and the culture that and Hollywood and this and uh, as if that helps. Right? Like as if people get up on a Sunday morning and go, man, where's the most anxious, worried, negative place I could go? Oh, I know, church. <laughs> I mean, seriously, how big is our God? Do we think he can handle it? I think he can handle it. We can cower in fear and anxiety or like David before Goliath, confront those problems, shout them down and remind those problems who is the boss of them. And I've told you dozens of stories, people in this church who see God bring amazingly good things out of cancer, death of a loved one, all kinds of stuff. The physics of grace. More destruction means more expansion. More scattering means more gathering. More death is more resurrection because you see 2,000 years ago there was a death and it solved every problem. Where Jesus took on the worst this world can dish out, sin, shame, suffering, death. He put those things to death and he took them to the grave with him. And he left them there when he rose again, risen with healing in his wings, which means now every death leads to new life. Every no leads to a score of yeses. Every problem yields new possibilities. It's the physics of grace because of which we have nothing to fear. So Jesus, we ask that you do that voodoo that you do so well on our problems, be they corporate or personal. And Lord, we know that you overcome all things. And therefore, Lord, we are not afraid because we are with you. We pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen.